Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What do the words eternal life bring to mind? What is eternal life to you? And what did Jesus say eternal life is? Executive Pastor Eric Ryan brings us this sermon entitled, This is Eternal Life, which covers John chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Today's scripture reading comes from John 17, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's read together our prayer of illumination. O God, who gives generously to those who ask, give us understanding today that we may keep your word and turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm to us your promise in Christ that we may love and worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Would you join me as I also pray uh, this morning for our sermon. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for the truth that you prayed uh, in the garden. Thank you for coming to give eternal life to those that the Father gave you. And thank you, Lord, for the good news that the eternal life is knowing you, knowing you, the one true God, and Jesus, you who came on our behalf. Lord, would you be present this morning? Lord, would you help us all to hear from your word this morning? Would you change our hearts, make us more like you, and draw us closer to yourself? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, picking up uh, one of our kids from volleyball here at the church and then was headed uh, straight up uh, Alabama to go to football practice. And as I pulled out, I felt the the car transmission slip a little bit and kind of surprised me. But what surprised me more, and I've never seen this in my years of driving, but I watched as that little gauge that tells you how cool or hot your engine is just started going straight up to the H. And I felt, I could feel, even as I was driving, I could feel the, the heat coming through. I could feel the, the seats, the air conditioning turned hot. The seat even started to get warm. And I was about half a second from pulling over uh, when all of a sudden, just by God's grace, that thing started to go down. The car started to act uh, fairly normal uh, again. And, and of course, if you have a good mechanic, you know what this is like, right? You get to call them on your cell phone. It's amazing. Uh, and then they, you give them the symptoms, you give them the indicators of what's going on with the car, and that helps them to diagnose what's going on. And as I was talking and the car was, had, had pulled the car into the garage and was talking to uh, my friend, I, I started to just be baffled by the fact that, man, you can share a symptom with some of these mechanics. You can share an indicator with some of these mechanics, and they immediately know what the next thing is to look at. I think the same goes in some ways for our souls, for our lives. There are things that go in our lives. There's reactions that we have to things maybe, or maybe there's uh, symptoms or fruit that we're seeing in our life that oftentimes can kind of set off 
a little bit of an alarm. Hey, something's not healthy. Hey, something's not right. Hey, something's not uh, going properly with my walk with Jesus. And in those times, sometimes uh, for, for some of us, I know that God has kind of really set some anchors in Scripture that we can go back to in those times. I'm, I'm no different. And at times, some of those alarms are maybe being short uh, with the ones that I love the most. Maybe it's apathy uh, in the disciplines uh, that we go through as Christians, whether it's going to church or whether it's reading our Bibles. And, and for me, a few weeks back, those alarms started to go off again. And there's been one passage in particular, one truth in God's word uh, that really starting about five or six years ago, when those alarms start to go off, he has brought me back to time and time again. And it's this passage here in John 17, 3. And when, it, when he brings me back, there seems to be a truth. There seems to be a truth in this passage that he reminds me of and then asks me to kind of go back and look at, am I applying that truth in my life? Here's how I would define that, that checkpoint, that truth. Eternal life is found in knowing God and the work of his son. In other words, to say I'm a Christian is to say I personally know the triune God and Jesus who came to save sinners like me. Again, to say I'm a Christian is to say I personally know the triune God and Jesus who came to save sinners like me. Being a Christian is relationship with the one true God before anything else. And time and time again, God has seemingly had to bring me back to that truth and then helped me to take that truth and try to apply it in the various ways just to make sure that everything is healthy and right and good. Let me read this passage one more time as we begin to talk about it here. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This prayer is called the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying it in the garden. And he, he's praying to the Father and he says, look, you sent me to give eternal life to everybody that you have given me. And then in a beautiful way, he defines eternal life. That they may know you. That they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's so many things that I feel like we would normally fill that blank in. And this is eternal life, that we get to go to heaven and live for all of eternity without sin and death and pain. And this is eternal life, that they would become more and more like us, that they would die more to sin and, and live more to be like us, Father. And this is eternal life, that they would serve you, Father, and not their flesh anymore. But that's not the words that Jesus chooses to use in that moment. And this is eternal life, that they would know you. Gnosko is the word there in the Greek. When you trace 
Gnosko back into the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's most likely the copy in some ways of the Bible, the Old Testament that Jesus also had. And when you trace that same word that's used here in John 17, 3, it seems to show, yes, it can be an immediate no, right? Like, I know that I love uh, college football. There we go. Just to keep Jeff's track in line here. We have now mentioned it six weeks in a row on stage. I'm just kidding. Right? It can be an intellectual quick knowledge, right? I know things about math. I know things facts about the Bible. But also, gnosko can denote, can denote a, a deep understanding and experiential knowledge. In fact, it's interesting to me that even a couple of times when, Jesus, when God begins to discipline his people, he actually says that he's going to send them to a land that they do not know, gnosko. Now, that, that could just be it's a land that they were unaware of was even on the map. But that's unlikely because most likely they knew the people that were going to come that God was going to use to conquer Israel at that time. A land you did not know, people you've not experienced, ground you don't understand. Right? It's a land that you've not lived in. It's, it's not home. You don't know it. Even in the Old Testament, there are times where this word is used to, to talk about intimacy in marriage. There's a verse that says, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived a son. Right? This word in John 17, 3 is an experiential knowledge of God. And we see this theme throughout. We see it really honestly from Genesis to Revelation. But this morning, I wanted to highlight Three common passages that people go to to remember this truth. Again, this whole time, I just want to paint a picture around this truth that God commonly brings me back to uh, in seasons where I feel my alarms going off in hopes that maybe it'll be helpful for you this morning. Jeremiah 9, beginning in verse 23, says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, Gnosko, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Man, what a beautiful passage. What a beautiful passage. Can you imagine for a second knowing all the things that God knows when he speaks this to his prophet Jeremiah, knowing all the things that he knows, even that he knows that we're going to have this passage with us in God's word throughout all of eternity, and then think about all the things he's aware of that his people will accomplish through their riches, through their might, and through their wisdom. When he speaks these things, he sees it all. He sees the Christians who have taken a great stand for injustices in places where there's unhealth, Christians who have set up hospitals, Christians who have taken a stand for God's word and God's people, Christians who have gone 
to unreached people groups and risk their lives to share the good news of the gospel. He has seen it all. He's seen the generosity of believers who have given millions and millions of dollars to advance his kingdom. He has seen the decisions, the big decisions that we know that Christians have made that have been great decisions, whether it's in um, the setting up of governments and countries or whether it was in the small spaces in various conference rooms and meetings and one-on-ones. He sees every moment of wisdom. And yet he says here, don't boast in your wisdom. Don't boast in your might. Don't boast in your riches. But if you're going to boast, boast in this, that you understand and know me experientially. That you know my steadfast love and my justice and my righteousness experientially. That word boast there, it seems to to paint this picture that it's not just a declaring, it's not just a, a, a form in some ways of a bragging, but it's a relying upon. When people come to you and they ask you, why are things going so well, that it wouldn't be that we would boast in our riches or boast in our might or boast even in our wisdom, that we would boast that we know and understand God and that his steadfast love righteousness and justice rules and reigns forever. But I don't, I don't want you to miss the grace here. If over here was our own wisdom and wealth and might, and over here was boasting and knowing and understanding God and his character and his steadfast love, think about for a second how much time and energy and thought go into these things? How much time and energy and thought go into our strength, whether it's our health, whether it's the strength of our family, it's the strength of our faith? How much time and energy and thought go into our financial health and stability and the economy and the future of the economy? Or how much thoughts and and, and strength and energy goes into seeking wisdom, rightly so, seeking wisdom. The grace is that God in this passage is saying, no, 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 if you're gonna boast, if you're gonna lean in on one side, boast in this that you know me. that you understand me, that you've experienced my steadfast love, my righteousness, and my justice. There is a beauty in this passage. There is a grace in this passage. There is a freedom in this passage that should bring relief. The second passage is Philippians 3, 4 through 8. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, gnosko, Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is written by the Apostle Paul. He's, he's in prison and he's writing to the church in Philippi and he's listing out all the things that he has accomplished, all the things that God has given him. And he says it's nothing. It's nothing. He is, he is in a Roman prison sitting on a dirty, rocky floor, likely a ceiling that was not very high. Darkness regularly. He says, you know what? It's all rubbish. It's all rubbish compared to the fact that I know him. I know Jesus. And whether I'm in a Roman prison or I'm out sharing the good news of the cross, he is with me. And I get to experience him speaking to me and I get to hear from him in his word and I get to experience him calling me and sending me and nothing compares to knowing Jesus, my Lord, even while I'm in prison. And the grace and the experience, everything in that list that he listed there, he was either born with or he would have to work to keep up. Status, education, accomplishments, but the grace, the grace of Jesus. The greatest gift we receive through the good news of the gospel is not a new family, even though we do. It's not even a new heart. For that matter, it's, it's not even salvation, if salvation was apart from Jesus. The refrain of scripture is that the greatest gift of salvation is God. John Piper put it this way in a book, the God is the Gospel. He said, when I say that God is the Gospel, I mean that the highest, best, final, decisive good of the Gospel without which no other gifts would be good is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. I love the way A.W. Tozer put it in The Pursuit of God. He said, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source of all things he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he actually has lost nothing, for he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. Amen. The good news of the gospel is knowing Jesus. It is having an actual, personal relationship with him. And so oftentimes we get knocked off track. There's one other passage I wanna share uh, around this with 1 Corinthians chapter two. And Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, a church that's struggling. 
A church that honestly is struggling because they can't figure out what pieces of the worldly culture around them to leave and what to bring with them into the church. He puts it this way. Uh, This is chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. He said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is reflecting back on when he first came to Corinth and began to share the good news. And he said, I decided to know nothing among you, but Jesus and him crucified. Here we get a glimpse into Paul's ministry plan, his strategy. How do you walk into a city that is so morally far from God that there is debauchery everywhere? And how do you bring the good news of Jesus? And how do you bring repentance? We get a glimpse here. Here it is, the great apostle Paul, and he has shown up in the wretched Corinth to bring renewal through the gospel. What will he do? What will he set up? What will the speaking circuit that he creates look like? What programs will he provide to draw in the Corinthians who clearly as a culture went after what was attractive to them? His strategy, his decision, what he had to focus and fix himself on was to know nothing No, Gnosko, nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Knowing Christ is Christianity. It is our greatest joy as human beings to know Christ is our greatest strength and apologetic is our greatest strategy for ministry. The strength of programs are not good news in and of themselves. And even as apologetics, I was thinking about my kids earlier this week and about this this message. Right now, rightfully so, especially among parents, there is just a lot of fear of what the culture will mean as we're trying to raise disciples of Jesus. And how will the culture impact them? And a lot of times as a pastor, you know, one of the things that the messages that we'll receive oftentimes or the requests that we'll receive is we have, we have to prepare our kids for every answer. We have to prepare our kids for everything that's going to be said to them. But if you go back, and even with some of the greatest apologists like C.S. Lewis, It's fascinating because them wrestling with the hard questions, yes, it it moves some of the rocks maybe out of the soil, but most of them testify to a time where they met Jesus. C.S. Lewis talks about taking a ride on a motorcycle from one place to another, and he says, when I left, I was far from Christ, and when I got there, he had found me. The greatest apologetic that we can give our kids, and I trust me, I'm the worst at this. I am trying to pound truth at my kids day in and day out. They love it. 
But the greatest apologetic we can give our kids is for them to know Jesus. Nobody's going to come up to them and tell them that somebody that they talk to day in and day out, somebody who speaks to them, somebody that moves and interacts in their world and calls them to go places, nobody's going to step into their world and say he's not real, and they'll go, you're right. What a great logical argument. Why? Because they have experienced him. They have seen him move. Somebody, even though I'm a pastor, somebody who is not a believer could probably out-argue me. But they will not convince me that the things I've seen him do did not happen that the words I heard him say were not spoken, and that the things he's asked me to do, he did not ask me to do. They just simply cannot convince me of that. The greatest apologetic we can build in our own lives, the greatest thing we can share with the world, and the greatest thing that we can show to our kids is how to know Jesus how to walk with him. Some diagnostic questions to leave you with here this morning. Do you know God? It is not uncommon to meet somebody who has been in the church for 20, 30, 40 plus years, but they do not know him personally. Do you know God? What have you seen him do? What have you testified of him do? Sure, for some of us, you may be able to share the story of the miraculous, but I'm talking about the day to day, the moments when you've prayed and you've received an answer, the moments when you've sought guidance and he's given you direction. What have you seen him do? Jeff asked this question of the staff a couple weeks ago. Do you enjoy God? Not, not the programs that a church would bring, not the people even that he would surround you with as the family of God. Do you enjoy God himself? To where if he removed everything you love about Christianity, he removed the, the morality of it, he removed the programs of it, he removed the people, the work to serve the community around us, he removed everything you enjoyed, the music, the worship, and all that was left was him. Do you enjoy God? What are you and God talking about these days? In any given relationship that's closer than an acquaintance, you can in some way summarize the last conversation you had. You can in some way summarize the interactions that you've had, what are you and God talking about? What are you requesting of him in prayer? What are you saying to him in prayer? And what is he speaking back to you through his word? I, I, I know there are times when God speaks to our hearts, but for this morning, just consider with me, what is he saying to you through his word?
Every time you read his word, whether it energizes you or corrects you or leaves you feeling empty, apathetic, and bored, the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken to you. What's he saying? When is the last time you did something differently because God redirected you? This could be something huge where you look back at your life and you go, man, my life would look completely different if I did not know Jesus. If I did not speak with him and him speak to me and him redirect me, I promise you my life would look completely different. But maybe for you, you even could look back this week. Maybe you said something differently. Or maybe you said something that you would not have said if you didn't follow Jesus. When's the last time you did something really hard because you follow Jesus? It's not that if you know Jesus and you experience knowing God that everything he asks you to do is gonna be miserable, but he does have a tendency to call you out of your comfort zone. He does have a tendency to say, Eric, I know you possess in yourself the ability to do this. I need you to do this. And you look at it and you go, nope. But it's, it's in the gap here to here that you begin to lock arms with Jesus. You begin to experience him and know him. And so if you've never had these moments here, if you've never had these moments here, then growing in relationship with him, growing in that experiential knowledge of God, growing in that eternal life, it's gonna be really hard. The reason he calls us here is because he loves us. It's not because he's harsh. It's not because he's a disciplinarian. It's because he loves us. And when you get to experience the intimacy that's built between those two, you look back at that calling and you go, Lord, I, I would have it no other way. Man, that was rough. But I would have it no other way. What can you look back on and see that it was something you did differently because God himself redirected you? If you answer no to most of these questions, if you answer no to all of these questions, know that you're not alone. And the good news this morning is that you can know him today. The good news this morning is that that, that passage pricks at your heart and you're, you're hearing the sermon and you're going, I, I, I don't know him. Friend, that is good news because you see that. And all that's required is to see him with eyes of faith. And as you see him, you will see your sin and you will repent. And you will understand that the wages of sin is death. And you will see his work on the cross. And you will turn and you will repent and you will receive full forgiveness of sins. His righteousness, his perfect life placed upon your wretched one, an eternal life, eternal life.
And I would encourage you, if that's you, there will be people here that will want to pray with you this morning. You can email me. I would love to grab coffee and walk with you and help you understand this is what it looks like to talk to God and to hear him talking through your word. This is eternal life, to know him. Let us help you with that. Let us help you to experience that. Most would assume that the majority of this room are, are people full of people who know God. Again, at 9 o'clock on Labor Day, it's probably all people who know God. <laughs> because of that, on some level, I, I want to take this diagnostic questions in some ways, and I just want to help you apply it in two areas that commonly, when God brings back this truth to me, He's commonly, ha commonly having me go back to these areas to apply it. <clears throat> Area number one is kingdom work and obedience. Kingdom work and obedience. Kingdom work is a true requirement of Scripture. The Great Commission is a real requirement from this Jesus that we know and love. It's real. Going after obedience and holiness and sanctification is healthy. <clears throat> but so often for us, it gets the priorities get out of whack. And we can start running after the things that God's called us to do. He may call us to shine the light of Christ in a dark area of our city. <clears throat> and we can go running after that. And as we run after that, all of a sudden, we're exhausted. All of a sudden, we're short with the people around us. All of a sudden, everything that used to give us nourishment dries up. <clears throat> and more often than not, for me, this has been when I've lost sight that eternal life is to know Christ. Imagine if you were meeting with a married couple that was struggling, and you're trying to diagnose what's going on, and so you... You're talking to the husband and he says, you know, I, I don't get it. <clears throat> he says, I know everything that my, lo my wife loves for me to do. I, I do the dishes every night before bed. I mop the floors. I vacuum the house every single day. We go the places that she wants to go. I make sure there's not a day that she has to cook dinner. I do everything that she's asked of me. You're sitting there and you're going, okay, that's, that's strange. It seemed pretty intentional. <laughs> well, tell me about your conversations. What, what are you guys talking about? Oh, well, we haven't talked in months. Well, like, no, no, like when you're doing all those things, what are you guys talking about? Oh, no, I'm, I'm just doing them because I know she, she loves them. But no, we don't, we don't and she, when she talks to me, I, I'm not actually listening. That would be a pretty easy diagnosis. But how often is this true of the Christian? That we are running around, just completely exhausted, 
raising the children in the way that we hope that he wants us to raise them, attending church because we know he loves it when we attend church and serving the poor because we know that he loves it when we serve the poor and all the things that he's asked us to do. But then we, when, when somebody says, hey, what, what's your time with the Lord been like? Yeah, I've been having trouble. I'm just really busy. And, and please hear me, this is not designed to be a weight. This is designed to be a breath of fresh air. To go and to do the things that Jesus delights in without actually delighting in Jesus and enjoying relationship with him, it will leave you empty. And joy comes when we slow down for a second and we listen to him and we hear him speak to us through his word and we regularly spend time in prayer speaking to him. Then he fills us. Then we go into those activities. And at times when you're walking with him, he'll probably cut some of those activities out of the agenda. Because he cares for you. And as silly as it sounds, as somebody who would be struggling with their marriage because they were, were relentlessly serving their spouse but never speaking a word. It's what it's like for me when obedience gets out of whack, when the priorities get messed up. And I've lost sight that the good news of the gospel is not kingdom impact. The good news of the gospel is Jesus. The good news of the gospel is God, the one true God, and knowing him and walking with him. The second area is relationships in general. When this priority, when this truth of scripture gets out of place for me, I grow needy. And sure, needy for guys and girls may look different. Needy for different types of people may look different. But one of the first things that starts to go off for me is my, my craving for community, my craving for friends to speak certain things into my life. Hear me, community was created by God. When he adopts us, we become a family. That identity, us belonging to one another, is real. But if you come to a church or you come to a community and your first instinct is, I'm feeling dried up and I'm feeling a little bit empty and I'm really hoping that this will be the place that we find that community that fills us, I promise you, you probably do need community. But if you go after that community first, rather than digging your roots even deeper into communion with Jesus, this is what the old theologians used to call it, communion with Christ. Building community with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If that's not the first priority, where we hear our identity, where we're given our gifts and strengths, where we're receiving our call, then we go to everybody else and we start to crave those things. And then what do those people naturally do? No, I'm good. And it's heartbreaking 
I can point to several times where I've had as a pastor people in my office desperately looking for community. But if you start there, if you start there, you may find people backing away from you. And I believe this. I could be wrong. This is just the saith Eric. I believe that the Lord allows that to happen so that all that's left is him. All that's left is him. And then when you grab hold of him and then when you engage with him again, you'll start to see it. You'll start to see the people of God coming more around you. And it's not this, this selfish thing, but they're just drawn to Christ in you, the engagement with Jesus that is in you. And they start to gather and community starts to strengthen. And then you'll have moments. Everybody has moments where those priorities get out of whack and people start to step away a little bit. But seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. Friends, Jesus, communion with Christ is sufficient. And yet in his goodness, he has called us to commune with one another, to belong to one another. And that's why we run after that as a church, because he's designed us that way. He's made it. But communion with Jesus is sufficient if that's where he has you. And if you try to commune with Jesus and then you try to isolate because you're an introvert like me and you go, great, communion with Jesus is, is sufficient. I won't be back here again, right? And if you're like that, then what he does, what you spend time with him, you spend time with him and he draws you into community because he won't let you go through this alone. So those are the two areas that he commonly has me reapply this practice, this theology, this truth over and over again. Kingdom work and obedience and relationship. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that the gospel is not to go and to do and to prove ourselves. But the good news of eternal life is to know you. Lord, if anyone in this room does not know you, Lord, would you introduce yourself to them? In grace and in goodness, because of what you've done on the cross on our behalf. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.